going outdoors and investigating your environment, you know, just being part of it is part of the education, you know, it's, it's the start of your education, really, like investigating your surroundings and just being let to kind of openly investigate that. What's this green thing over here? What's this hard rock surface over here? And with all of your senses, I think that's part of what's going to stimulate you to then want to learn like and actually ask questions and then want to answer those questions. And I think it's the basis of what we talk about with science. That's the natural way of beings is, you know, oh, they they're able to investigate their surroundings and ask questions about their surroundings or whatever it is eventually, you know, but initially it's your surroundings that you're going to be investigating, asking questions about, and then you want to learn more and Maybe even you even do little baby experiments, you know. So, for example, kids love this piece. This is education, right? They pour water out of a cup and it falls on the ground, and that's educational, right? That water's held in a cup, and then when they tip it, then gravity acts upon it and it falls on the ground, and they're learning something. I don't know. That's where education begins. <laughs> Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. This is the last episode of season three dedicated to interviews conducted in the greater Kansas City area. The episode needs no lengthy introduction. Our discussion will center around education. My guest today is Bridget Chapin, an old college friend who is a professor of environmental science at Haskell Indian Nations University Bridget holds a PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology. Welcome, Bridget, to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Bridget, the podcast has listeners in 33 countries right now. I think it would be wonderful if we could try to provide an overview of the U.S. educational system before we delve into some more ideological questions. What do you think? Sure. Sounds good. I think there are a lot of differences in the way education is approached in the U.S. as opposed to Europe, for example. But why don't we just start with primary education? How does education begin for children already in the U.S.? And then we'll go all the way. We'll work our way up to university. Okay. Yeah. And and I think definitely just as a caveat, you know, of course, I'm not an expert in kind of how education is put together, you know, kind of the structural approach to education or constructing education systems in the U.S., but from my, this will be from my own experiences, of course, as, as a, you know, a person growing up in the United States, most of my experiences are from the Midwest. So I, I was born in Minnesota, went through public school, and then moved to Lawrence, Kansas. So really the middle of the country, that would be my kind of where I'm coming from. And then you also, you're a mother as well. So you also have a 12 year old. So you have this firsthand experience of how education has changed as well in the U.S. That's a very good point. Yes, I do have my (laughs) my 12 year old daughter and has, and I've seen it from the parent side now versus the the kid's side going to, to school every day. And sometimes honestly wondering what is school and why am I here? (laughs) when I was a child, I was like, huh, what is this weird thing that we're all stuck in? But I enjoyed it. I've always enjoyed school. So we'll say that too. But as far as, you know, 
kind of the, that elementary school approach for the U.S. From my perspective, where I was growing up, a uh, majority of the kids I interacted with were all public school kids. And generally, starting at five years old in kindergarten in public school and going from there, parents had to figure out their own kind of care for anybody pre-kindergarten, you know, so just kind of finding a daycare provider or something like that preschool type program prior to kindergarten. One of the things that is nice about living near a university is that you often have programs that the university has on offer for preschool and daycare. And many people who want that higher quality kind of early intellectual interaction for their young ones, their toddlers, they'll often flock to programs offered um, with long waiting lists through universities let's, in the let's U.S. Say, let's stay with that just real quick. So already, I think that's one of the differences. If you look to France, parents tend to send their children to nursery school, so daycare quite early on. Nine months to a year, children start what is called daycare. But in mm-hmm. Germany, I would say it tends to be more around age two, but definitely by age three, children are in kindergarten. What would you say is the norm in the U.S.? I think it definitely varies. I had my daughter in something called Educare. It was just the name of that particular program at the University of Kansas. And they did a lot of intellectual stimulation with the kids, you know, really trying to early read and all those kind of things, academic type stuff. And they started that as early as two years old, prior to kindergarten, right? Prior to, prior to a public school. There's also Head Start programs and other funding where an elementary school will actually have a three, and it's usually, I think, three three or four year olds. So basically I think they're potty trained before they can come to like the elementary school and do kind of a preschool program. And some elementary schools have grant funding. And so parents can get their kids into that. So that's maybe three or four years old and that's very low cost. But I I think that's pretty high demand. I don't know what the waiting list on that's like. And then there are parents who want to, you know, obviously live, you know, have their kids be home all the way till kindergarten. So they just keep their kid in their home and do whatever home-based education until five. And then when they get to be five, that's the first time they've gone to any sort of formal academic enrichment. Some of the folks, you know, obviously offer private home, home daycare. And then there's, of course, the big companies like the La Petite Academy, toddler and baby, very baby, baby care, you know, earlier than, even earlier than six months, you know. Mm. Um, so there's a range. <laughs> so so I started off the question with saying that we we delve into ideological questions later or or ideological issues later, but I have to stop here already because that's so interesting. I, I find it so fascinating when you compa- compare educational systems um, between countries. And for example, that's one of the biggest differences that I noticed in Germany. Children are not encouraged. Childhood is thought of as a time to play and to explore and grow socially. And children are not encouraged, for example, to read at an early age. In fact, it's almost frowned upon. It's almost, they're almost held back. So children in Germany typically learn to read at age um, seven or eight. So when they are in first grade, 
So what's mm. called here preschool, I know, uh, well, that's another thing for the listeners. So there's daycare or nursery school, then there is what in the US is called preschool, and then it's kindergarten, am I right? And then it's first grade, right? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, that, I'd say that's, that's a good, good way of describing it. So the other way around is, is in Germany is the other way around. So it goes from first you go to kindergarten. <laughs> and then that's kindergarten, it's called kindergarten. And that is the US preschool. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what's called here preschool is the kindergarten in the US. So in Germany, you do, it's really funny. So in Germany, you do kindergarten, preschool, and then school. Oh, okay. And it's, I mean, I've, I've also thought about how on earth could this be so messed up because it's just calling, you know, two different, the, the same thing by two different names. So it's just kind of completely just mixed around. But typically children start, go to a school, especially here in Northern Germany from preschool on and that would like be like I said in the U.S. system is the kindergarten so it's a year before first grade Mm -hmm. and that is usually part of the school here in northern Germany and there they're still doing um, little logic games games you know maybe they get introduced to some letters and they're coloring the letters or things like that but they're not reading or writing all that happens in first grade and this has been something that has been a conflict for me because I felt my children wanting to learn to read and I let them. So that was kind of a problem that that the school frowned upon it. So it's very interesting for me to hear that indeed, you know, in the US, it gets gets encouraged a lot more at an early age. Yes, definitely. And, And the other piece of this, though, is that we have all kinds in the US. So we have all kinds of people's philosophies, you know, and of course the Waldorf school school approach, that is where it's a, it's kind of a movement toward having kids learn to read later and not, and as you're talking, you know, it's definitely more, apparently more of a German approach or a European approach. They, they don't really want them to learn until they're seven. They want them to be outside running around. They, they want them to be, like you said, socializing or you using their hands to build things. And so that is definitely shared by quite a large minority right now of folks in, you know, across the nation. But there are definitely Waldorf schools popping up all over the place. And then, and that's their approach. And then um, there's also the Montessori schools, which have a similar kind of hands-on, the children are doing, learning by doing a lot more than say reading or, you know, rote memorization or that kind of stuff mm. well the Waldorf Schule Waldorf schools they come from Germany so they're huge here so that's yes. that's definitely one so so okay but we got kind of a nice little review of elementary school at least so then the children go on to middle school which already there's a big change uh, or a big difference to Germany because in Germany they have the year before first grade that's the preschool year. Then they have four years of elementary school. And in fifth grade, there is decision whether or the teachers and the parents together make a decision when the kids, whether the kids are going to go on to what's called gymnasium, which is a college track school mm-hmm. from fifth grade on. Or if they go on to a Stadtteilschule, so typically um, 
Those schools go towards general education. They teach a, a craft. So, well, there's also Berufsschule, but, but there are different types of schools. But those are typically the, the children who do not go on to college, typically. Oh, Although you okay. can still switch. But this happens in fifth grade already, right? So That's so early. That is very early. So then still within that, it's fifth and sixth grade. That's called the Unterstufe or the Beobachtungsstufe, which where they decide where they, they indeed can stay in this gymnasium. Then there's Mittelstufe in the, the middle part of this of this system where they where they go on. And then there's the what we would equate to our American high school, right? And then they go mm. on to college. Um, but pretty much their path is decided in fifth grade. So wow. do you mind sort of doing that equivalent in the US system? So it's middle school. Yes, yeah, so that's that's I kind of had the a bit of an understanding of that perspective in Europe for sure. And of course in Germany, because I had some friends who were foreign exchange students at Lawrence High School when I was going there as a junior and senior. And um, the way they talked about their education seemed like they had to make some decisions, some pretty heavy decisions really early from my perspective. But anyway, so for us, for middle school, different cities do it differently, but often middle school is sixth, seventh, and eighth grade together. And, and then high school is ninth through ninth through 12th. But in Minnesota, middle school was actually called junior high that you can hear it be called either middle school or junior high. But often if it's just seventh and eighth grade, it's called junior high more likely. And so anyway, Lawrence used to just used to keep the sixth graders with the elementary schools and it let them be kids a little bit longer, I feel like. And now they've put them in with the seventh and eighth graders. And I think it makes them grow up a little bit faster than I like, frankly. <laughs> so my yeah. daughter's in sixth grade right now. And so they're in with the seventh and eighth graders rather than in with the fifth and younger grades. So, um, well, you know, it's what it is. But uh, that middle school, there's no kind of decision about any sort of thing you're good at or any sort of testing that says, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're going to be on a track for this particular field. Now, with that said, I think the perspective in the U.S. is that in, you know, once they're out of out of elementary and getting into seventh, eighth grade, they're starting to kind of, sh I don't know, the gelatin is starting to firm up in a way, if you will, sure. like they're, you're kind of seeing the shape of are they going to be able to, I don't know, perform at a level that will allow them to do well in a, in a college environment, in a university environment, rather. Often the goal is, you know, for most folks, oh, I want to get my student, my child into or ready for university, right? And how can I do that? How can the public schools help my child do that? What are some deficiencies related to that? So that's been the thinking. But in recent years, I think there's more recognition that, you know, maybe that's not where everybody should be ending up as college, you know, as university rather. Maybe, you know, having some more, I don't know, just being more even handed in, okay, understanding how to cultivate you know, the, these talents that, you know, in, you know, hands-on work, you know, and do these kind of things that, you know, maybe aren't going to be the things that you need to go to a university for, you know, that's, it's something I'm noticing like trade, trades, trade school type 
pathways. That is very interesting as well. So in fifth grade, you have to get what's called the Gymnasialempfehlung. So your teachers give you a recommendation to go to this gymnasium, right? To go on this college mm-hmm. track school. Okay. But your parents can decide to send you there, uh, even if you don't get this recommendation. But okay. oftentimes what I see happening is, um, I've just seen this in my, my children's friends as well, where parents are actually deciding not to send their kids to a gymnasium, even though they had the recommendation, because they feel that their child lacks the maturity, or they feel like their child is a slow reader, or they feel that they had a lot of, they felt the pressure in in, in, uh, elementary school already. And I think Mm. that's also a very interesting approach as well, because But, you know, again, I don't know if I'm American or Hungarian or what I am really, Um, but I know that from, for me, that would not have been an option. I mean, had I not been good at something, my parents would have had me tutored. Um, Right. It just, it's just like sort of just my cultural baggage (laughs) would say, well, if your child is not doing well, you get them the help they need. Um, But at the same time, you know, I did my PhD on the effects of theater, but I used the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu and Bourdieu talks a lot about sort of the cultural capital and the inflation of titles and things like that. And, and so that's one of my big things that I think just societally, we do need to value the good mechanic, the good electrician, the good baker, the good, you know, sort of not everybody has to be, in my opinion, intellectual. And I do think that some people go to college who have no business being in college and who would be actually an absolute asset to society in other aspects of life. So perhaps, yeah, maybe, maybe just one or two comments from you on that. Yeah, it's, it's really, and that's kind of goes back to my original comment about what am I doing in school as a child? I remember really thinking about that, like really struggling. I mean, I guess it was an existential struggle, right? Like what, what is this system? What is this thing I'm in, you know, where all of us children are here in the school learning the things that these, these particular people want us to learn, like someone else has put these things in front of us and said, this is what you should learn. And it's, and, I, and then I, I would think, you know, it's getting in the way of my learning. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Um, that's, and that's, and so like, so... maybe if I had a natural route to learn, maybe I would be something different. That's so strange. I mean, that, that's funny that for you to say that. And, you know, we haven't been in touch for a long time, but we were quite good friends in college. And I always thought of you as very highly intellectual. <laughs> like, like, you know, you're, you're a biologist. You're, you know, I have a degree in biology, but I never thought of myself as a biologist. I was never mm-hmm. a scientist. You know, I was always artsy-fartsy. <laughs> so I, and you were, to me, you were more... Yeah, that's funny that you say that, that that in high school you struggled with this, with these, some of these existential questions. Yeah, because, well, but I wanted to be doing biology. I mean, that's, I mean, that I wanted to be out, I mean, but I wanted to be doing it in a way that wasn't necessarily in the classroom. Um, And, and so, so, I mean, it's, 
it's nice that I was able to stick with it and then be able to do the thing I wanted to do anyway, that I think I, I think I would have naturally been uh, a biologist um, if I didn't have as much of a formal training, but I think I would have come to it from a different perspective and maybe been, um, maybe something related to what I do now, but something, you know, something just uh, maybe different, something more, oh, looking at plants, medicinal plants, or looking at, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. So what parts of your education do, do you think, we, we shouldn't get off on too much of a tangent, but <laughs> what parts of your education do you think were superfluous? Oh, gosh, I don't know that I, sh- I would say it, in, uh, that it was not, you know, useful, or it was not something that wasn't valuable. It's just, I spend a lot of time in my own head, I guess, and have, um, I kind of have a mind over body attitude, if you will, like my, my head leads me everywhere. And so I, I guess I needed more free thinking time. And I felt like I would have been more creative in the areas that I'm better at thinking mm-hmm. about if I'd let, if I'd been let to have more time doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> does, it, does that make any sense at all? It does. It does. And I think, I think that that's an, an interesting balance as well. I mean, you know, I have three children and I watch how they learn and they learn completely differently. Really, each of them is completely different, has a completely different approach to learning mm-hmm. and to discovering the things that they enjoy and all three of them are very good students but they like I said they approach it completely differently wow they they have a completely different accent on what is important to them Um, and I wonder sometimes how much of the forced learning is necessary but I guess Mm -hmm. I always think you know I Again, we're getting off on a tangent. I remember, I I don't remember questioning it in high school or, you know, elementary school, high school. I don't remember questioning it in school. I was always kind of very much interested in a lot of different things and sucked it up like a sponge. Where I do remember questioning it was more on the, (laughs) sort of on the PhD level where I was just kind of thinking, uh, you know, for my exams, for example, I had to remember different editions of books and, you know, and right. And just dates and things that I forgot after the exams. And now if I need it, I look it up. Or um, I remember being quite frustrated. I do have a degree in human biology. I remember being frustrated by parts of it. I was never, like I said, I don't think I'm a scientist. I, I very much struggled with organic chemistry and things like that. Physics. Oh, mm. dear God. I bribed the, you know, <laughs> sort of the, the, the guys in my class to sort of help me with my assignments always. Otherwise I would never have made it through physics. Um, but I loved, <laughs> seriously, uh, secret out. <laughs> but I loved, I loved biology. I loved human biology. I loved anatomy. I loved dissection classes. That's where I was very much into it. And I, and, and I think I could have explored it a lot more, um, but right. it, you know, sort of, I went on to be an aerobics coach as well. So like anything like that, kinesiology, how the body worked, the muscles, all that yes. fascinated me. Um, but I was not a scientist, you know, microbiology, things like that. That's where you lost me. And that's where I mm. remember kind of going because, you know, my parents wanted me to be a doctor, a physician. Yeah. And I think I could have been an okay physician had I been allowed to approach it more on this like 
purely body level, right? It's like a body mechanic, <laughs> if oh, you will. Nice. You know, sure. but, but not the scientist. I was never going to be a pharmacist or someone who, you know, or my husband's an anesthesiologist. That's oh, okay. Like anesthesiology, you know, where you like actually like go into like, ugh, how does this affect it? How does this affect every organ and every system? And I'm, <laughs> that's where you lose me. I don't regret not being a physician at all. I don't think I was made for it. I, I'm an absolute hypochondriac and hate hospitals and sick people. And <laughs> so, so it's not, it's, it's, it wasn't a good profession for me. But again, I wonder how many, I think there are a lot of doctors who are good at what they do, you know, but not necessarily, aren't necessarily scientists. If right. that makes any sense. And I see that even in my students. I see, I, I have had a lot of medical students. I teach them English and, and ethics and things like that, where I taught them in the past. And I see the difference between the medical students and the, for example, microbiology students, right? So yes. it's, it's, it's different. It's a different brain, if you will, in my opinion. Oh, yes. I, and I agree kind of the, yeah, like you said, a body mechanic versus, you know, a higher, higher level thinking about kind of all the processes that go into this pattern of disease that you're seeing, for example, or, you know, compare, yeah, the patterns, looking at the patterns is the key, I feel like for, for scientists, you know, and teasing those out um, versus kind of addressing the body in front of you with X and Y and Z possible solutions, you know. Absolutely. So, so let's go just, just to sort of uh, finish our review of the educational system. So, so we've got this elementary school, we've got middle school, high school, or junior high school, high school. So let's go into college. What happens with college? How do, I mean, I know this, but let's review it for the, for the listeners. How do students go on to college? Maybe some of the assessment tests. Um, maybe you could talk about that for a second. Yeah, it's definitely, it's variable based on whatever college that you're interested in or university. And, and I, th I think that terminology is also interesting in the U.S. because we usually use the term college to mean a four-year um, university, essentially, or four-year upper, a higher education um, after high school. Um, so you get a four-year degree or your bachelor's degree from an institution like that. or it, um, usually the term university is often, it often goes with also offering master's and PhD degrees. So graduate degrees in addition to undergrad. So you could go to a university where they offer, you know, your undergrad degrees, your four-year degrees, or, you know, and then go on, you know, but it's also usually recommended not to, if you were to go, you know, get your undergrad degree at one place, it's recommended not to go to that same place to get your master's and your PhD. It's, it's usually um, academically recommended that you go somewhere else, although it happens. But, um, but that is, that is a frequent recommendation because you just don't want to have just all the same influence, intellectual influence. You want to get some variety there. From high school to college to a four-year degree program, you have the these different standardized tests, and students will start to take them, gosh, really early. And they even have, I found out just this last month that there's a program, I can't remember the name of it, it's for the sixth, seventh, and eighth graders to prepare themselves to take what's called the, the P PSAT or PSAT um, and which is this college 
assessment. You take a test and then the colleges look at that to see, you know, whether you're a high achieving student in terms of that that standardized test. And so they're preparing kids at the junior high to take that test. And then during high school, you know, junior year, I believe, is when you start to take that test. You can take it again, the PSAT or the, the pre SAT, and then you take the final SAT exam, you know, I assume, you know, it's been so long, but I assume it would be the the early fall of your senior year. And then that's something you put into your package for applications to the to the different schools that you would like to go to for for higher education. Um, and then there's the ACT, which is another standardized test looking at college aptitude, essentially. And that's another one that students will take. And some colleges in the past accepted the ACT and not the SAT. And then others would take the SAT, but not the ACT. And now I'm not certain, honestly, because it's been a while since I've looked at that. I'm not, I'm thinking the SAT is more common now or a combo or or either or kind of thing, Um, or sorry, either one, I think in many institutions is, is, is okay. But I think the SAT is, is, I guess, more common. I really am not certain of that. So that would be a, that would be a fact check thing at some point. But um, those are the two that I know of that a lot of the um, four-year programs. Right. Right. And the difference is, the difference is just for the listeners. So the SAT focuses on English and on math, whereas the ACT has, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, it has social studies and are you Googling this? Should we Google this real quick? <laughs> I, I am not because of my whole brain issue right now. <laughs> well, let, me, let me actually just let me Google this. Yeah. ACT. <laughs> but yes. Just so that it's like in the episode. So, okay. So, whereas the ACT has English, math, but also reading, science, and writing. So it has a bit different parts from the from the SAT, and these are standardized tests. And I, I, you know, for me, I went to my parents moved to the U.S. when I was twelve, so the PSAT and all these standardized tests came quite quite quickly. And I remember always thinking it was yeah. very unfair because you know, how was this testing me the same way it was assessing other students I had only had three four years of English <laughs> so mm-hmm. you know so at the time so um, it is quite heavily weighed on English and and yes. um, reading and writing comprehension but in addition that to that true. you do have also then the GPA right so the grade point average oh. Um, yes, that plays important. a role. And um, so how well were you doing in your school and in your classes? And then also uh, extracurricular activities, but I think which I think is also really very highly valued in the US. Yes, very um, much so. So would you would you maybe go into a, a tiny bit about the GPA? I know that's something that's always fascinates my students when I when I talk about it in class. Um, oh, because right because we have all these AP classes and things like that so maybe just one or two sentences yeah yeah definitely so so that the GPA is kind of an interesting animal and I actually advise my undergraduates I'm an advisor as well as a professor so I have students that I directly advise 
as, you know, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior in, in my environmental science bachelor's program. And of course, you know, I think of the GPA from that perspective, but in, in terms of that high school GPA, yeah, the colleges and universities definitely will look at that. And and one of the things in the U.S., of course, is that there, and in anywhere, is that there's less preparation in certain geographies. If you live in, in a certain area, you'll have less college prep, essentially, the college preparatory courses, like you were mentioning, um, you know, the AP or advanced I think it stands for advanced placement um, classes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, and those are those are the kind of things that help in higher level college prep. And anyway, so so there's different opportunities for different students. Different geographies have different different levels of preparedness for college and different um, offerings for for high school and that kind of thing. And so. Um, the GPA is, is grade point average. And so you're averaged your grades across, you know, that four year time period. And usually you're looking for something above a 3.0 and, and really something above a 3.8 to be in the top consideration for a college. And, and, and really you're wanting to get a 4.0, which is, you know, A's all across the board, but different schools actually grade differently, like they'll have an A plus system and, and other schools don't. And so when you're, when the colleges are evaluating transcripts, they should know those kind of things and need to kind of keep that into, in in mind. Um, The other thing they may do because they are concerned about having geographic diversity in their student body. And that may be something that some colleges think about, some universities think about other more than others, but they will they'll say something like either a GPA above X, you know, 3.0 or 3.5 or 3.8, or you were in the top 10% of your class, of your graduating class. Right. So that's another thing that they'll do. Um, I don't know how many do this. Um but um, but definitely some some co- especially four year colleges will do that and that will bring a, a higher geographic diversity into their school. Hmm. And another thing with the GPA is it is possible to have it above a four point um, I know. That oh, I'm, good point. Right. So so I was in a lot of AP classes in I went to school in Overland Park to Shawnee Mission West we had an AP program and you could take college classes from when you were 15, from your sophomore year. And um, Mm -hmm. so I graduated with, oh, I didn't know how many credits, but basically two years worth of college class credits um, when I graduated from high school, right? So all my math, uh, a lot of my English, things like that were all already uh, sort of quote unquote taken care of. And yes. for those classes, um, an A was a, was a five, right? 5.0. 5. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. that's one of the- I forgot all about that. I was able <laughs> to get a, above a 4.0 GPA. So there's that as well. Right. And maybe just one other thing that we haven't mentioned is the, the fact that you can also go to a junior college, which I think is quite different. I don't think we have that here at all. So- Oh, uh, yes. Right. So- do you want to say something about that? Like that grew out of the 1950s, right? Of people wanting to keep their kids a little bit closer and uh, not, yeah. not move out yet. Yeah, I'll let you t- say it. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the, there's not, I don't, you know, I'm not incredibly scholarly in terms of that 
area, but, um, you know, just as far as my kind of observation growing up in the U S that junior colleges are really important. And in fact, a lot of times, so they're usually a two-year school and they'll, you'll get an associate's degree from a two-year college, you know, so, so you, you could either, they're sometimes known as community college and sometimes called a junior college or a two-year college, you know, there's, there's different names, but people will get an associate's degree. It's a two-year degree and it's generally, they don't offer upper level courses. So in, in the U S in college, we talk about hundred level two, three, 400 and up, you know, and usually above 400 is often graduate programs, but it depends where you're going, but the three and four hundreds are, you know, the kind of the junior and senior or third and fourth year classes often um, that need prerequisites. And so the junior colleges generally are giving your 100 and 200 level coursework. And one of the cool things about that is, of course, mom's sick. I need to stay home near mom. I can go and get college credit and live at home. Or on the other hand, I don't have a ton of funds. Um, This is, is cheaper for me, I can go for two years at a junior college, get a nice base of my prerequisite courses for, say, my biology degree, and then I'll go and get my majors courses at University of Kansas. And so then that means only half of their schooling was really at a larger university that's more expensive. And so it's a lot cheaper mm-hmm. to get that four-year degree. Um, one of the challenges is, though, that a lot of the universities in the U.S., you have to get X number of credits from their program to graduate from their program. Mm-hmm. So you may have to retake a couple of classes in order to get above, say, 60 hours or 70 hours in their program, you know, in the new university in order to get that degree from their from their university. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. OK, so so then I think we've come kind of to the. Uh, to the end of the rainbow, right? So, so then if you're going to college, right, you can go to trade school if you're not going to uh, go to college. Otherwise, you go to college, you get an undergraduate degree. Afterwards, you'd get a graduate degree, so master's or PhD. And I guess there's postdocs and things like that afterwards. Sure. Um, right? And then there's medical schools, which are a little bit different, but uh, that I talk about in, diff- in, in other episodes where there are these six-year medical programs, or you can go and get a four-year degree in a science, for example, and then go on to a four-year medical school in addition. And then there's, of course, law schools and, and sort of various other specializations and things. But let's go a little bit more into your field and into some of the ideological questions. So Maybe talk to us a little bit about ecology and evolutionary biology and what that means, how you got into environmental science, especially after your PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology. And yeah, and then let's go on from there. The AP courses I took at Lawrence High actually allowed me to have time in my junior year, even though I was getting a science degree, which usually takes all of the time up for for a young um, college student, I was able to go and study abroad during my junior year and not worry about, oh, I don't have enough hours to graduate in four years. So I was able to take time and go study in Spain for about six months and not worry about not getting enough science classes. So I was able to take, you know, kind of the non-science general education requirements 
that you have to take in a liberal arts education in the U.S. usually in a foreign country. So that was really nice. And then for graduate school, I actually got my master's in environmental science. So that's something I left out of our conversation. (laughs) Um, That was because of my interest in ecotoxicology, which is kind of just trying to figure out Mm -hmm. um, toxics in the environment and how they move through ecosystems and affect people, you know, eventually, obviously, but I'm very fascinated with the fate of chemicals in our environment and, you know, following their different pathways and, you know, how they get broken down in natural systems or not, as the case may be. Uh, so I, I got my master's in environmental science and it's it was, it was from a civil and environmental engineering um, department. And that was very human-based. And I found I was more and more interested in kind of non-human organisms, but definitely because of just the the recognition I have of, of the system that we depend on as humans that involves all sorts of other creatures, um, you know, um, and, and as we talk about, and at Haskell, Indian Nations University, we talk about those creatures as our relations. So we actually, that is um, an indigenous kind of thought way is we talk about other species as our relations. Anyway, so beca- started becoming more interested in what was going on with other organisms and the system in which we live and especially focusing on them. So I got into ecology and evolutionary biology, which really does address ecologies, the relationships between organisms and between those organisms and the environment, including humans, right? And then evolutionary biology, looking at you know, evolutionary connections between organisms and really understanding truly that we are relations, right? (laughs) That we have these basal species that we've evolved from common ancestors between us and that frog that we saw in the forest when we were taking a walk or whatever it is. So it's really fascinating to think about that. Anyway, so learning about ecology, did a lot of work in the tropics actually got a fellowship to study in the kind of to study whatever I wanted, frankly, but related to looking at organisms as indicators of environmental change is kind of the thing that really got me fascinated with ecology and with that field. So that's really kind of what what started to float my boat, if you will, during my PhD program is looking at organisms and different systems and thinking about them as indicators of environmental change. And I finally ended up doing, so I worked in the tropics, I worked in the Midwest, and I finally, and I was, I'm very fascinated with aquatic systems for the most part. Those are the ecosystems I'm fascinating, fascinated with. And so I ended up doing my work um, looking at stream ecosystems and looking at patterns in fish communities and stream ecosystems and how those patterns reflect changes in the landscape and what's going on in the landscape and um, just in a nutshell. And so, and so therefore, you know, how you can relate the kind of fish that are in this particular stream to what's going on with um, urbanization or what the soil type is or climate or whatever. Um, And so really understanding really natural variability, spatial variability, in stream fish communities over the landscape. And once you understand that, then now, okay, based on that reference point, now we can see how things are different or changing due to may, maybe human perturbations, right? 
and human activity. And so, so that's what I did my PhD on and actually had a postdoc looking at, because I've been very interested this whole time in how do people make decisions about the environment, right? How to, based on science, right? How, in general, how do we, be, people make decisions based on science and based on scientific expertise and knowledge? You know, so basically, what is this I'm doing and how useful is it to the world? <laughs> like the yeah. scientific work I'm doing, how does it get translated into something that anybody gives a flip about and does something about, you know? So I went and worked for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration for a year as kind of a postdoc position while I was actually finishing writing as a um, congressional liaison fellow. So it was a program funded by the by NOAA, and it helped me understand what it's like to for a scientist essentially to help brief, say, a congresswoman or a congressman before they go into hearing to a hearing on legislation to deal with marine invasive species, for example, or estuarine conservation, or dumping, you know, regulations in waterways or whaling or fishing regulations or, or any of that. And so I got to see, you know, just anyway, look into that for a while, because I was really interested in how, how does the science get used in decision-making in, in law and in, in legislation, very eye-opening, but I felt like that wasn't really the place I wanted to be in the end. I finished writing and I also had my now husband lived in, was living in Lawrence. And so I wanted to come back. And I also have a connection with indigenous communities. My mom's siblings are indigenous. I just felt like I wanted to do mentoring of an important part of our, our nation um, in terms of environmental science. And I felt like I could make an impact on students, I felt like education kind of all comes back to education so very often. And if you can help students realize, you know, kind of their passion and also hopefully bring them to be passionate about the environment and, and fascinated with biology and science and those pieces and connect with the natural world, that that's going to make a ton of difference in, in what our landscape looks like in the future. And so I was able to get a position in environment and, and they had an environmental science program, a four-year program at Haskell Indian Nations University that was really exciting to me to support. And, and I felt like I could make a, a big difference. I have, we actually have students at Haskell that are from all over the nation, including Alaska. And so we are really geographically diverse. The students come from all over and then they go home. And sometimes, very often, they become leaders in their own tribal nations. And those tribal nations have incredible purview over much of the United States West, right? So they 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 are important players in what our lands and waters look like. And I just feel a, a passion to support their community development, their nationhood building, et cetera, and a, a healthy future for, for folks who are indigenous to the United States. And so it was kind of this perfect combo of, it's a program I really want to support. It's like a, an area field I'm really excited about. Plus there's students that I feel like have often been underserved and are doing in, could be doing some incredible things with their own nation's lands, right? Um, and waterways. And so, so that's kind of how I'm, I've come to be at Haskell and I'm just really excited about the things that we've been able to do here. It's just, it's been great. I've led at least three 
different study abroad opportunities, which were the first ones to get science study abroads at Haskell. So, so anyway, that I'll stop there. <laughs> oh no, please don't. I almost feel, uh, like I'm doing you a disservice and having you on an, on an episode on just sort of entitled education and sort of having <laughs> wasted your time on reviewing uh, the educational system where uh, clearly this is something that you're so passionate and so interesting and so, uh, uh, yeah, I just, I, I I could keep listening to you. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'll even change the title to education and the environment. What the heck? It's my podcast, right? So it is. <laughs> um, please, I really find it so interesting, all the things you're saying. And I think the listeners will as well. And I will make sure to introduce the, the episode so that it includes this. So they know this is coming after the review of the education system, please okay. go on a little bit more. I, I find it really, really interesting. And maybe the way we can link it, since I intended to do an episode on education, I think it's really interesting that we can link maybe how, when, when does education start, right? So the environment is so incredibly important and all the things you're describing and all, and you're, and I was not familiar, I have to admit, I was not familiar with your work. I was looking forward to this episode to reconnect with you. It's been years since yeah. I've spoken. So, <laughs> so I, I had kind of lost touch of exactly what you do. So, right, I, you may know, but the listeners might not know this as well, that I had the opportunity to spend a few months in Kansas recently. So I took a bit of a, well, it was, it was a parental leave, but the equivalent of, of a sabbatical, and we were gone for four months. And oh, our, nice. kids, our kids were enrolled in the Blue Valley School District and went to school in the U.S. And one of the things that oh. fascinated me was that they really had a lot of topics that were somehow linked to the environment. So linking the, envi the environment to education and to your expert expertise and your passion, where do, where do you think education starts? I mean, we, we started with, you know, you saying some of the times in high school, you wondered what you were doing and yeah. what, what was this whole thing that you were engaged in, this whole thing called school and why were you supposed to be in it? And yeah. And sort of the, the passion that you bring to your work now and the counseling and the mentoring of your students that I can, as you were speaking, I could totally imagine them going out into their communities and passing on some of the excitement and, and passion. Where does that start? So again, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if my question makes any sense. Again, so yeah. prefacing it with I was very positively, very impressed and positively surprised by the amount of attention that was paid to the environment already in middle school, right? My kids are 12, the older ones are 12 and right. paid, paid to in the Blue Valley School District and how much that prepared them. Not to say that in Germany, they don't, they, they really absolutely do as well. But how much of this, you know, early education, uh, how much of it starts really in elementary school and in high school to prepare these mindsets or to, um, again, and I'm sorry, it's a very lengthy question, but, but also we were saying, you know, in, in Germany, children in fifth grade have to kind of decide, are they going to go to college and uh, which path are they going to take? 
how much of this, you know, sort of, how do we balance all this within an educational system to allow children already to start developing some of these ideas and some of these passions that they might be able to explore later on in life? Yeah, long long question, sorry. Yeah, well, I think, I think what else, you know, what you're getting at is, is that going out, going outdoors and, and investigating your environment, you know, just being part of it is part of the education, you know, it's, it's the start of your education, really, like investigating your surroundings, and, and just being let to, to kind of openly investigate that, you know, and, and what's this green thing over here? What's this hard rock surface over here? And, and, um, you know, with all of your senses, I think that's part of what's going to stimulate you to then want to learn, like, and actually ask questions and then want to, want to answer those questions. And I think, I think it's the basics, the basis of, of, um, you know, what we talk about with science, you know, that's like, that's the natural way of, of beings is, you know, oh, they, they're able to investigate their surroundings and ask questions about their surroundings or whatever it is eventually, you know, but, but initially, you know, it's your surroundings that you're going to be investigating, asking questions about, and then you want to learn more. And maybe even you even do little baby experiments, you know, so for example, you know, I think about obviously pouring water, kids love this piece, this is education, right, they pour water out of a cup, you know, and it falls on the ground. And that's educational, right, that that water's in held in a cup. And then when they when they tip it, then gravity acts upon it and it falls on the ground and they're learning something. I don't know. That's where education begins. <laughs> sure. But I mean, now we're going back to the Waldorfschule and then, you know, sort of we talked about, we started with where does education begin in the U.S. and sort of formal education or, you know, whatever school education. And and yeah. I, I was very excited about the things you were describing with uh, all these daycare programs in, in conjunction with the university and with, with, psycholo- with psychology departments, et cetera. And I was saying sort of, you know, I, I missed a little bit in Germany. Uh, my children not having this uh, input to learn to read much earlier. But you know, we're, we're kind of, we've, we've gone full circle and saying, actually, maybe it's very good to let children initially explore their environment and themselves and their bodies and, you know, just these natural things that are happening around them instead of focusing on the nitty gritty, you know, uh, spelling and one plus one. Right, right. I think it's a combo. You know, I don't, I don't think that if a kid really, really wants to learn to read, you know, why hold them back from that, you know, as long as they're getting other kinds of experiences, and they're not just sitting inside and kind of looking at that two dimensional paper, you know, that that they've, that they get, it's the mix, it's the mix that's important. I think the mix is important. You know, and that's what happened that our our daughter, our, our youngest daughter is actually two years ahead in school. And it just, We've been criticized for it and it's been a difficult decision. And we always tell her, you know, when, if you don't want to, you can always just, you know, wait a year or, you know, skip, you know, go back a year, right. whatever you'd like. But it's just, see, she has these twins, these older siblings, 
and oh. she just wanted to to read much earlier and she has kind of a math brain so there we actually kind of hold her back just because it's like yeah okay kid just no you're already in third grade you just turned eight please don't start doing you know fractions and <laughs> you're just like yeah but but it's the same thing where I feel it was a balance of okay I cannot destroy her joy of learning and her little, you know, sort of uh, self-motivation. So, so it was was a balance of trying to, you know, yeah, but, but it was always very important for us that she, that she be socially integrated and that, you know, that, that thankfully, you know, also went along with it. Had she, I don't know, um, had she had difficulties uh, getting along with the kids or, you know, anything like that. I think we right. probably held her back, but she made made friends and, you know. Right. And I think that it's parents have to make different decisions about, you know, they have to look at their child. They have to eval- they have to actually know their child and think about their particular child and whether reading right now is the best thing for them or whether waiting is the best thing or or focusing on socializing is the best thing, or, you know, you know, all of those pieces, because man, kids are so different. They're Mm -hmm. just fascinating how, how very different they are. And how can we be, you know, how can we be flexible with the kids, you know, so that they, that they don't get overwhelmed and, and, and develop anxiety. And right now at, in the U S we are having an anxiety pandemic. I would call it an addition to to our, of course, COVID. The kids are really anxious. I don't know what it's like there. I think it, there have been psychological issues faced by schools um, here as well, um, coming out of COVID and the, the current political situation, et cetera. Um, but that is actually one of my questions. What do you mm-hmm. think are the most significant problems faced by the education sector today, whether whether they are purely educational problems, you know, or more social, psychological, so, socio-psychological problems. Hmm. And I and I and I I completely hear you with the anxiety and depression and isolation. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I mean I think yeah the challenges. So the question is the challenges to our educational system that mm-hmm. kind of the yeah you want to know yeah. yeah boy wouldn't you say so what, wouldn't you say I'm not I'm just kind of going out on a limb here that sort of the 90s was kind of the you know the clicks and the mobbing and the peer pressure um yeah. certainly there are some issues even today of that um maybe there's some school violence things like that but wouldn't you say that now I think Generation Z is facing more of these, yeah, psychological challenges? Well, I think I think there are is, is just a ton more anxiety starting very early. So, being a professor in a higher education institution, you know, definitely I've talked to other professors and advisors for undergraduates and we're we're talking to students who have anxiety starting way back in early high school or junior high and they're and it's just been with them it's it's just it's it's like a chronic condition it's not there's not like an end in sight and it's potentially I'm you know again in talking to, to professors across universities it really paralyzes 
the kids, even like I said, even through young adulthood, when I'm working with them and it makes it really hard for them to show up to class even. So social anxiety, I'm hearing, you know, this person in in my class only came to two classes this week. Well, they're not, obviously they're not going to get what they need. Now on top of this, we have actually that was more before the pandemic. Now we have things online. Some students are finding it easier to be online. So they'll, they'll actually come quote unquote to, to class in terms of they'll sign on and they'll be there. They may not say anything, but they'll at least be listening. And then other students find it more stressful to be in a online environment or they don't feel connected. So they don't even show up. But yeah, I, I feel like this anxiety, the social issues are really keeping a lot of students back. But I think what's what's happening is their education system has not seemed hopeful, like their futures don't seem hopeful. And I think that's really a, a very important thing for us to weave into our education is, is hope. Hmm. And so I'm very careful in my environmental science classes I show, you know, and it makes me tear up thinking about how dire things are with the environment right now, but I show students where people are building solutions for environmental issues and trying to work together and how, and how do people build solutions and where are some projects that are really positive and outcomes that are positive. And I build that in. I don't just show them, you know, say videos or talk to them about statistics about this many extinctions and this many, you know, degree days that were higher than a hundred in New Mexico or Arizona, or, you know, I don't just do that, but I also say, okay, we've got these fabulous people and communities and citizens who may not have a big long bunch of words after their names or or titles after their names but they're coming up with solutions and showing that is really important and so are you hopeful about the environment sometimes i get down thinking about people's decisions especially at the high level like the high level decision makers in the us and some of their decisions that just don't have any sort of consideration for the public, you know, for public good in terms of sustainability, right? So a sustainable good. And it's super short-sighted and it's it's very frustrating and just having honest, just doesn't seem honest. The conversations aren't honest in terms of environment. And um, I go back and forth. I feel positive when I see some of the things I'm digging up to show my students, it even helps me, frankly, <laughs> um, you know, mentally from, for my mentality and to keep going day by day. But I do feel like there is hope. Um, I think, honestly, I think what we're going to be doing is, is triage. We've got to do triage and figure out ways to keep certain key communities. When I say communities, I mean of different species intact enough that we can all survive but I honestly think we're going to lose a ton of our really amazing species that, well, I know we are. And it's, and it just makes me sad for my children. And I don't know how to barricade them from that sadness. I just don't, you know, so like we buy our kids, all these stuffed animals of like tigers and polar bears and look at the cute elephants and all this stuff. And it's like, holy crap, they might have a future without them. And, and that 
is very sad to me, but at the same time, I think we can figure out how to build and interweave communities of organisms and communities of people in concert with those organisms to try to keep ourselves afloat, basically. But we won't have some of those amazing creatures that we've known have been on Earth for so long. And it's, and it is, a, and we know that it's our fault in a lot of cases, which makes it worse. <laughs> oh and so, so that's sad, but you have to kind of compartmentalize that if you can and try to do what you can on a, a local level and know that you're only human and you're kind of caught in a societal way of doing things and expectations and that kind of thing. And you can, you can do what you can do and basically don't kill yourself because you've, you haven't done every single thing you could, you know, cause you're just a human being, you're one human being mm-hmm. and just do what you can day by day. Oh, Bridget, I think that that almost brings us again back to the very beginning of our conversation where ultimately it is, it sounds so cliche to see the children are our future, right? But the education of our children is so incredibly important in order to be able to continue educating them and in order to be able to continue implementing positive changes to all aspects of our lives in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Be kind to each other. I think that's really important and understand that everybody's coming from a different place that, you know, maybe they didn't, they didn't have the opportunity to bike to work today or whatever it is because of where they grew up. It's like, you got to just try what you can do personally in your own society and your own community and have a good nature toward it and toward other people, I guess. One of the things that I have always thought was really interesting that Obama has said is how the general educational level of the world (laughs) has gone down, right? Um, Just general education has gone down. Mm. And do you feel that that's true? But maybe we could just sort of, maybe I could say something. Let me try. I have an idea. So maybe it ultimately boils down to learning from each other and continuing to learn lifelong and continuing to influence our little ones and our elderly. How do you feel about that? And do you think that in general, our level of education has decreased that perhaps we're not, or or perhaps that we went through a phase where we were not as interested and engaged, then maybe now we're waking up and discovering how important education, and I mean with education, a general interest in life and everything that it brings with it. I think that people are always learning in different ways. And I I think that maybe we, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can say that people weren't valuing education before, but, but I feel like when you have these kind of really big issues that confront society as a whole, then I I think definitely a huge portion of society says, okay, we've, we've really got to get serious about learning now, right? We really need to understand how do we make our societies more sustainable? 
how do we protect our future for our children? And, and it can be based in education. I don't think we have to have a structural, and hopefully I'm answering your question. I don't think we, we have to have a structural approach to education in some cases. I think at Haskell, I've been learning a lot because I didn't have formal learning in indigenous history and culture and um, education and that kind of thing. But we talk about different knowledge systems And so I think that you don't necessarily have to have this kind of formal based in, you know, going to a building away from your home kind of education to have a really strong educational approach in your society. And I think about some traditional knowledge systems being very multi-generational that you've got children teaching younger children, uh, grandparents teaching you know, very young children and, and of course, parents teaching. So multi-generational approach to education. I think that's really important in a community setting. And I'm hoping, I've been struggling with this myself, but I'm really, really hoping to try to model some multi-generational learning. Because right now you think about college, everybody's in college from, you know, 18 to 21 in the U.S. on average. Of course, you have people who can go to college at any age. But really, wouldn't it be much better if we're not just having a bunch of 21-year-olds teaching each other and the professor as as an older person, but the students, let's have more age groups together so we can learn from each other and value that. And one of the things I've been finding that I've been learning every day, like you were talking about, you know, consistently learning throughout life. I learn something new almost every day from my students. They teach me so much. And, you know, I wouldn't have that opportunity if I was say at a company with everybody from 30 to 60 year olds, you know, there's not, and and you're not kind of often you're in a kind of a competitive environment. You think of a kind of a typical office situation, you know, you might be at a, in a competitive environment and you don't have this open approach to kind of knowledge sharing and learning and that kind of thing. And so I will say, I just am so excited by the opportunity to learn all the time. And I hope, I hope we can kind of keep that in mind in terms of our education. Like if someone graduated from college, they're not done learning, you know, and keeping in mind that they can learn from very many parts of the society they live in or community members that they interact with, you know, from someone who comes in to help with the children or do some sort of service task that they interact with to someone who's in a very high leadership position. You can take that opportunity to learn from anyone and be thankful for that knowledge that they're sharing with you. And kind of recognize it too. And I think that that's a really exciting, I guess, way to be or approach to life. I think I kind of answered your questions. Oh, you absolutely did. And I I would just like to kind of comment, make a couple comments to that as well. This idea of multi-generational learning, I think is so incredibly significant and not just multi-generational, but multi social uh, learning. So Mm. learning from all Mm -hmm. fractions of society, Um, things like, and I, and I think, you know, we, we talked about the environment quite a bit, but I think it's knowledge in, in every, every aspect of learning this curiosity with COVID, you know, a lot of cultural institutions were closed and and were not available to people. And I see that, for example, people going to the opera and the ballet and the symphony and the theater and museums um, and being, again, excited about it instead of perhaps having taken it a bit for granted before COVID. 
But beyond that, I love to ask my fish guy how to prepare the fish and where the fish comes from. I love to, if I see an old lady at the vegetable stand, I always ask how she, or, you know, an old man, I guess as well, uh, actually an old man, one of my neighbors is a very, very good cook, how they prepare their vegetables, discovering new vegetables. Um, Yes. What alternatives do you have to, uh, you know, more environmentally friendly paints for your house? I'm, you know, I'm now I'm like sort of going down into all sorts of tangents, but in every aspect of life and, and you get that this wisdom, right? Sort of knowledge used to be passed on through the oral tradition and grandmothers and great grandmothers sang about it, chanted about it, right? That's something that I think we should not lose. There is a value and a a reciprocal value. My children's political views rub off on my parents' political views and vice versa. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and right. So so the younger generation being able to affect the older generation and what you said about university teaching, I mean, then and I a lot of my my students listen to the podcast and I would really like to say this to all of them. Honestly, one of the things that I enjoy more than anything, I mean, next to sort of spending time with my children, probably, <laughs> or writing, writing on this podcast are going in and teaching. And I honestly see yeah. my job as an absolute privilege. I seriously, I can be tired or sick or demotivated or somewhat down on everything. And I go into the classroom and it is absolutely uplifting. And I do find it, it's a privilege. It's a luxury. It's a, it's really such an amazing gift to be able to spend time with young minds, young people who have opinions and views and who sort of are in this conversation with you. I absolutely, I'm completely with you. It is one of the most satisfying professions out there. So yes, it's it's a wonderful. I had a student one time tell me how she was able to hunt her first sea otter and how that she did it by herself. And she described how she prepared the sea otter and saved the meat and the fur and all of these things. And I mean, that's just one example of like an amazing thing I learned from a student recently. Sure. One of the things that I really believe in is, is, is using, for example, the entire animal, if you're going to hunt, Ah, right. So very much agree. Bridget in closing, let me ask you one last question. What are your hopes for the future of education or, or two, a two-parted question? What are your hopes for the future of education and what messages would you leave educators and students with? Oh, gosh. So as far as my hopes for the future of education, I think, I think we can center a lot of subject areas around, honestly, around the outdoors. <laughs> So like, honestly, whatever you're doing is often something you can somehow pull it into the environment or relate to the environment or, you know, something like that. You can often, even if it's something that you have your experience outdoors, you know, you have your class outdoors or whatever it is. I feel like being aware of our, of the place we are as we're learning, whatever it is, is just so important. And I think people get get disconnected from that. And I, 
I think experiential learning really is right up there with my hopes for the future. I think being kind to each other in the classroom or in whatever the learning environment is, and and also recognizing that there are different ways, different knowledge systems, I'll just say it like that again, different, different and different ways of knowing and learning about things from different cultural perspectives and, and different cultures. They've developed different ways of learning and knowing about all sorts of things. And we need to be understanding of that and and perhaps incorporate and learn more from those other ways, especially indigenous ways of knowing. I think there's a ton to learn from folks who've lived, you know, lived off, lived in areas for millennia. And, you know, whether they're people, indigenous people of Europe, whether they're indigenous people of North and South America, and, and folks who, even folks who've just lived for a very long time, even if they're kind of a new colonial colonial person, but they've lived there a very long time. There's ways, you know, there's, there's opportunities to learn from them. And so that's kind of understanding all our opportunities to learn from different points in society. And that's kind of my hope for recognizing and broadening where you can learn. Maybe that would be another thing, you know, the locations that you can learn and, and valuing those things that those are valuable. And then um, and then valuing the knowledge that people bring to say leadership positions too. you know, having a perspective of if a person has studied something for very long and has spent a long time thinking about it, it doesn't remove them from society. It makes them a very important part of society. They really need to be involved in decision-making and discussion and you know, however they've come to learn about that, we do need to have kind of a respectful inclusion of those folks. And I think we're in the problems we're in because we're not valuing that ama- amassing of learning and we're not bringing what we really scholarly folks have amassed to the actual problems of the day. Um, so respecting learning, <laughs> learning <laughs> and education. Yeah. So that kind of combines with the hopes, you know, so that, yeah, that, that hope for the future. And you said the, and then messages, Mm -hmm. you said the other part was the message. Yeah. I, I just say, keep learning and keeping having the attitude of learning and turn off technology for a period of time a day, every day, at least to try to just kind of be where you are and notice what's around you. Cause if you, if you don't notice it, then you can't really learn about it. And it it might surprise you (laughs) if you take more time to notice your surroundings. Yeah. Bridget, thank you so much for the interview. You're very welcome. I I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye-bye.